If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 42 through 47. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. I'll ask that we read this in unison, smaller passage for us today, you can read it with me, Uh, verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves, sorry, I should have given you a warning, here we go, one, two, three, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Father, we ask now that this would become the vision uh, for each one of us here at our church, uh, that we would model our ministry in our community and among ourselves in the same way that you modeled this church for us in the book of Acts. We pray, God, that you would be with us over these next few moments as we study your word. Teach us, instruct us, help us to be uh, submissive to your word, to obey what it is that you have for us this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the reasons that I've been looking forward to our study of the book of Acts is this book records the very earliest years of the New Testament church uh, before traditions or denominations were formed. Uh, This is the church of Jesus as it was originally. And as such, my hope is that during the course of our working our way through this book, we'll begin to have a church culture that is shaped by what we see in the pages of the New Testament. It's very easy for us to get all of our ideas of what church ought to be and how we ought to function as a church from outside sources, Uh, how we were raised or our particular church tradition, uh, what we're used to, uh, or just pragmatic things like we should do this because this other church did it and it seemed to work well for them. People liked it. Uh, What we want to do is go back to the primary source, the New Testament, and in particular, the book of Acts, Uh, all that it teaches us about the church as Jesus intended for it to operate. And so I want to encourage you just to try to set aside things you think you know or opinions that you may have about the church. Let's look at what the Bible provides as the model for the New Testament church. And today's text is the perfect place to start if you wanted to know what is God's design for the church. Because our text this morning is the start of the very first New Testament church. Acts chapter 2, of course, begins with this day of Pentecost in which the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem were uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues, as we've seen in past weeks. And then Peter stands up and he preaches that sermon uh, throughout Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people uh, respond with repentance and faith. They're baptized the same day, and that begins the church. And so we have an instant megachurch uh, right from the start here, over 3,000 people. And verse 42 and following describes what those early days were like in this infant church. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at 10 marks of a healthy church. Don't worry, I'm going to go through these fast. 
Uh, all of these are, are right here in the text in front of you. And if you follow along, you'll be able to see exactly what I'm going to say next, because we're just going to go right in the order that they're given. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the word devoted there is really key. Uh, these people were not merely meeting together uh, here and there once a month, Christmas and Easter, no. Uh, this church was made up of people who were all in. Uh, they were committed to this local church. And so all four of the activities that you see mentioned in verse 42 are what they were devoting themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. First, let's look at that first one, apostles' teaching. Uh, these Christians devoted themselves to the, apostle, the, the apostolic doctrine. Okay, this is what we have recorded in our New Testament. Uh, the writings of these same apostles are what we study even today. Uh, and they're giving, of course, the teaching that the Holy Spirit uh, gave to them. And so I believe that as a New Testament church, we ought to be committed to the apostles' teaching. Uh, certainly, I don't mean to intend by that that there's anything wrong with uh, studying or preaching from the Old Testament. That's all fine and good. But I do think there should be a priority for us as a church uh, given on the New Testament. These 27 books are written to the church that you and I are a part of still today. And so even as we read through the Old Testament, we need to do so through the lens of what is revealed in the pages of the New Testament. And so this church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, and we ought to do the same. We should be a church that is known for teaching Scripture. Uh, teaching is the number one priority of any true, healthy church. Because the goal of our mission in the world in, in seeing the kingdom of God built is not merely to make believers in Jesus, but to make disciples of Jesus. Uh, remember, Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so that's our mission. That's the mission of every New Testament church. The goal isn't just to give people the gospel and then baptize them. Uh, that's part of it, but then we must go on to teach them how to obey Christ, all that he's commanded, including the commandments that he's given through his apostles. Every word of it we are to teach. And so on this day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were saved and baptized and added to the church in Jerusalem, the work was just beginning. Uh, they, they had their work cut out for them. Imagine you know, opening a brand new school and the first day you have 3,000 kids all in kindergarten. Okay? That's sort of what, what the situation here. It's like, wow, uh, we've got to teach these people. We've got to train them. And so the apostles realized very quickly they had a lot of work to do. And this ought to be our work as well. Every service that you attend here at Lakeshore Baptist Church, you can expect to hear the Bible taught because this is the focus of every true New Testament church, to make disciples of Jesus. Uh, next mark of a healthy church, verse 42, is fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the doctrine of the church, but then also fellowship. Uh, fellowship is one of those words uh, you might not know if you haven't been around church much, and maybe if you have been around church a lot, you have sort of a fuzzy idea of what it refers to. Uh, some churches might have a big room that they call the fellowship hall, uh, which is basically where you go for meals or something. And so sometimes we think of fellowship as just sort of hanging out, eating a bowl of ice cream together, uh, talking, spending time together, something like that. Uh, the Greek word for fellowship is one maybe you've heard of, koinonia, 
It means partnership. Uh, so it's more than just hanging out and talking, spending time together, though that would be included. Um, it's seeing yourself as co-laborers with each other. Uh, all of us are on the same team, working toward a common goal of following Jesus together and advancing his kingdom in the world. Uh, think of maybe a tug of war where you've got you know a dozen people on one side of the rope. They're all pulling in the same direction, working together as a team. Uh, that partnership is what uh, the word means there, by fellowship. And so this church was devoting themselves to this partnership that they had as followers of Christ. And my favorite definition of the word fellowship is Philippians 1.27, where Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. And he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's koinonia. Uh, that's fellowship. We're partners uh, standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side, working together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Next activity of this church right there in verse 42 is the taking of communion. Uh, back to our text, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and then to breaking of bread. Uh, this is almost certainly a reference to what we would call in today's vernacular the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, those, you know, communion isn't in the Bible. That word is not found. What it's referred to often is just the bread in the cup or breaking of bread. Uh, often in the New Testament, this is how it is referred to. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper, uh, just called eating the bread, drinking the cup together. Uh, one chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians, we read the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so you see there that they, they viewed, uh, the, the New Testament church viewed taking communion, the bread and the cup, uh, together as a church, as participation in the body of Christ. Uh, this is one of many reasons that we have communion as members of a local church, because this is the intention of the meal. Uh, it's not something for just anyone who shows up or for visitors that would be offered. Uh, this church broke bread together and ate, and, and they were symbolizing their partnership that we just talked about, their participation as one body. And so communion isn't something you ought to take home. Uh, some people do that, you know, they'll take it at home by themselves or with their family or something like that. No, uh, communion is meant to be a church ordinance, uh, a, de a demonstration of our unity and partnership together as a church. Next, you notice in verse 42 that this was a praying church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, this is an area I think we can always improve on. Uh, certainly, prayer is something we do at our church. You, you see it often here. Uh, we pray briefly on Sundays. We have a time of individual prayer at the end of every sermon. Uh, Wednesday nights, we take requests from one another, and we pray for each other and the needs of our church. But I think this could, should become more and more a part of our normal interactions with each other. I'll give you an example of what I mean. A couple of months ago, somebody in our church uh, told me about a situation. I don't remember what it was. I don't even remember who it was. Uh, this sort of thing happens all the time where they'll say, I've got a doctor's appointment coming up or I've got uh, a job interview, whatever. Uh, would you pray for this? And they'll, they'll tell me, you know, it's happening Tuesday, you know, 8 a.m., whatever. 
Um, and so I said, sure, I'll, I'll pray for you. And by the way, I always do pray. I never just say I'm going to pray for you. I normally put it in my phone so I do not forget to pray because uh, I don't ever want to tell somebody, yeah, I'll pray for you and then completely forget about it. And so that's what I did this time. I, I sort of just filed it away. Okay, I got to remember to pray for so-and-so, and, and I think it was a doctor's appointment or something like that. Um, and then uh, just kind of didn't really think anything of it. They walked away. And then a few minutes later, I saw, I think it was outside, uh, the same person had stopped to talk to Malachi uh, on the way out the door. And they were talking there for a few minutes, and I, I kind of presumed that he was sharing with him the, the same uh, situation he had just told me about. And then I noticed that Malachi stopped right there on the stairs and prayed. He didn't just tell him, I'll pray for you, you know, like I had done, but just stopped and actually prayed uh, right there out loud together. And I thought to myself, why didn't I do that? Uh, th this ought to be a normal part of our life together, that we pray as a church. Uh, praying together for one another's needs, this is an incredibly biblical thing to do, and it ought to be normal. Uh, Acts chapter 12, this is a story where Peter is arrested. We'll get to this uh, I don't know when, uh, you know how slowly I go through books, but Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter, he's kept in prison, verse 5, says, earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. And so the church, by the way, this doesn't just mean that uh, members of the church were praying individually for Peter. Uh, this is referring to an actual gathering. They came together as a church for the purpose of praying for Peter. Uh, this is made clear in verse 12. This is uh, fast forwarding a bit after Peter gets out of prison. It says when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, uh, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so th these members of the church had gathered in someone's home and said, hey, let's get together and pray for Peter as a church. Many other similar instances we could look at, uh, but this is one example of the church gathering together. This is obviously a very serious situation, uh, Peter being in prison. And so they gathered together specifically for the purpose a prayer. Uh, James chapter 5, toward the end of the letter that James writes, he says, Is any among you, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So praying together, this ought to be a normal part of our life. And again, that's not simply me at home praying for you. Okay, that's good. We all ought to do that. But it's also literally praying with one another. Uh, just like in this, in this text, it doesn't just say if you're sick, uh, tell the elders of the church and have them pray. No, it says actually call them in the room. Have them be present with you and pray with one another. And so the, uh, the fourth mark of a healthy church is prayer. Number five, back to our text, verse 43, says, awe came upon every soul, uh, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I didn't include this among the marks of a healthy church because this is a description of the early church uh, that wouldn't necessarily transfer to uh, our church today. We don't have apostles uh, going around doing miracles like this. But uh, this is part of Luke's description of this church, I think, to reinforce the fact that there were some really miraculous, incredible things being done. And it, it caused awe to come on every soul. These were signs that were incredible being done by Jesus' apostles, uh, which, of course, as we've said before, validated them as official spokesmen and leaders of this church. And so they were all in awe, no doubt sensing uh, that God was at work in their midst uh, as this, this new age of the church was beginning. And then verse 24 says, and all who believed were together. Uh, that would be our fifth mark. They were together, meaning there was a sense of unity, a commitment to each other. 
They were a family. This kind of builds off of what we saw with the fellowship point. Uh, you really can't have partnership in the gospel if there's bickering and division amongst one another. And so unity is an essential component of a healthy church. And this church had it. Uh, they were a family. They were devoted to one another. And so Luke is emphasizing the unity that this early church experienced. Not only unity, but this unity was uh, so extreme that it extended to radical generosity. Notice at the end of verse 44, it says uh, they had all things in common. And then verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Uh, the first Greek word there is referring to property. So selling their land and their possessions, and they were distributing the proceeds of that to people who were in need. Now, a few clarifications are needed here. Uh, because a lot of people read this and come to some really bad understandings based off of this verse. First of all, this does not mean that Christians ought to be socialists. Okay, These believers in this church loved one another, and they chose to, at times, sell things and give the money to someone who was in need. Th that's not the same thing as forced redistribution of wealth, where the government you know, takes money from some and gives it to poor people by force. That is not what's going on here. The whole point Luke is making is they loved one another, and that, that love fueled generosity. This was an expression of their care for each other. Again, the government didn't make them do this, nor did the church. Uh, the church was not enforcing this. It's not like the apostles and the elders of the church were telling people, you need to do this. You need to sell your property. You know, I think you have a little bit too much money. You need to give some of that to, to Joe over here. No, this was not enforced in that way. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, we're going to see a story of Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple who owned some property, and uh, they pretended to give the money to the church. Maybe you know this story, uh, but they actually kept back part of it for themselves, and so they were deceitful in that sense. But Peter rebukes them for lying. Uh, but he doesn't rebuke them for keeping the money. He says to them in verse 4, While it remained unsold, this property that you had, did it not remain your own? Uh, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So in other words, it was your land. You could have kept it. Nobody was making you sell it. Even after you sold it, you could have kept the money. It was yours. And then he, he, he goes on to rebuke them for lying. But it was fine for them to own this property. They did not need to sell it. It was theirs. And after they sold it, it would have been fine for them to keep the proceeds. It belonged to them. In other words, the point is nobody was making people uh, give generous, generously to other people who were in need. It was not enforced. The idea here is that they were expressing genuine love for one another. No coercion taking place. These people just loved each other. And at times they chose to help those who were in need. So number one, it wasn't forced redistribution of wealth. It was organic, genuine love and caring for the needs of others. And obviously, by the way, not everyone was selling their homes since the text literally says they were meeting in each other's homes. So somebody still had private property here. Uh, also, this kind of generosity, though, it is a beautiful expression of Christian love. Uh, but unfortunately, it can be taken advantage of. And by the way, that happened in the early church. Uh, all of the problems, it's funny as you read through the New Testament, all the problems we have in churches today, they had back then too. Uh, people are people. As we'll see when we get to Acts chapter 6, it seems that many of the people who were in need in this early church were widows in particular. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul gives 
instructions to the church about how to care for these widows. Uh, to, and by care for them, I mean actually provide finances for them. These were destitute women uh, whose you know, husbands had passed and they needed someone to take care of them. And so uh, the church stepped up and cared for them. Uh, but it was only in certain circumstances. Paul gives guidelines here that we're going to walk through because it was being abused. Uh, there were people who were taking advantage of this, like a welfare system saying, ooh, free money, uh, let's go to the church and they'll take care of me. Uh, but that is not the point here. The point was it, was it was meant to help those who were incapable of working or providing for themselves. Paul writes, beginning in verse 3, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul says there in those verses that if a widow has uh, children or grandchildren, uh, that are capable of caring for her, for her, they ought to do that. Uh, the church shouldn't be burdened to care for them. Her kids should take on that responsibility. Uh, just like the mom raised the kids, now it's their turn to return the favor to their parents and help them. Verse 5, uh, she who is truly a widow, and here's the definition of what he means by that, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. So the requirements here to be cared for financially by the church were that, number one, you had to be a widow without family, so you didn't have people who were actually caring for you. Uh, these ladies were the, the true widows that he refers to here. Uh, these were destitute ladies. They had no one to help them. Uh, Paul says, don't take on someone who is self-indulgent. In other words, they, maybe they, they somehow had an inheritance. They're living in luxury uh, that's not really somebody who's in need. Yeah, technically they might be a widow, but if they're you know, living in the upper, upper class of your society, uh, you don't need to take care of them financially. Verse 9, uh, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a good re a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So these are pretty strict requirements. It wasn't just a free-for-all for anybody who came in the door. I noticed they had to be at least 60 years of age, which at that time was very old. Uh, life expectancy was like 40. Okay, so this is somebody who, in our, in our day and age, think somebody who's like 90. Okay, they have no, they basically, unless they're in incredible health, uh, they're not going to be able to work a job and provide for themselves. And so Paul says, you take care of them. Uh, this was for people who were destitute, no family, no means of providing for themselves. If someone was in that sort of desperate situation, the church had a responsibility to step in and care for them. And then the last requirement there is that these people would be actually a part of the church. Uh, members in good standing who had a reputation for good works, you know, rearing children, caring for others, and so forth. Uh, people who had a testimony, a track record uh, that validated them. Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the situation of people selling their possessions, their property, uh, giving this money to the church and distributing it to those in need, uh, this, first of all, wasn't socialism, wasn't stealing from some people and giving to others. It also wasn't a sort of free-for-all welfare system where just anyone who wanted free money would be given it. No, the church was caring for those among them who were truly in desperate need. Uh, one more passage on this point, because I, again, I've really seen Christians get very off track on this and out of balance. 
Uh, some people think that the church is the place to come for money. I can't even tell you how often, you guys, my wife, we get calls all the time from random people we've never heard of that just expect the church is going to pay their bills and, and give them free money. Um, but uh, at times, obviously, there are people uh, in your local church who do need help. Uh, that's very clear in the New Testament. But there are also some people who are just lazy. Uh, they don't want to go and get a job. Uh, so they try to live off of the generosity of hardworking people. They try to take advantage of the system. And sometimes I've heard people like this point to these passages as a means of guilting others into providing for them. And that's totally missing the point of what's going on in Acts 2. Uh, listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians. He says, For even when we were among uh, with you, sorry, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul says, provide for yourself. Uh, don't be a mooch. <laughs> don't come to the church and just expect everybody else to take care of you. So the generosity in the early church, it wasn't a welfare state where people who just didn't feel like working could come and get free money, nor was the church uh, forcing people to give up their wealth. It wasn't a cult like that, where they were forcing people to sell their property and ha hand over their money. No, uh, this was just genuine love and care for one another. People were in desperate situations without family, too old to provide for themselves, and they had a, a track record of godliness and diligence throughout their life, raising kids, working hard, caring for others. And so in their older years, if they lost their husband, maybe their family, uh, they, they didn't have any family to provide for them, the church would step in to help. And I imagine in a church of over 3,000 here in Jerusalem, there are probably several people in a situation like this. And it's a really beautiful thing to see the church rallying together to help these people who were in need, even going as far as selling property and possessions to care for one another. And so this is a great picture of their love and generosity. Next mark of a healthy church is regular meeting. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, this church gathered all the time. Notice day by day. So there would be meetings in the temple courtyards, which I imagine in Jerusalem, probably the only place you could fit 3,000 people uh, would be on the temple grounds. And then they also met in smaller groups, individually in people's homes, uh, which would again make sense given the fact that we're talking about such a large group of people. And these Christians, they met together regularly. Every Christian ought to make it a priority to meet regularly with a local church. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he just says very plainly, don't forsake the gathering of your church. Be there when the church assembles. And you can all pat yourself on the back this morning because you're here. Uh, but this wasn't just talking about gathering on Sundays in the big corporate meeting, but it was also having people in their homes, uh, meeting in smaller settings individually with others. I love the fact that here at our church, we started, or my, I didn't start, I had nothing to do with it. My wife started uh, a ladies' Bible study over at, at Robin JJ's house. So that's a beautiful thing. That's the type of thing we ought to be doing as a church, meeting not just here as a group, that's good, but also spending time together outside of just Sundays. I love when I hear about certain people kind of meeting up in, in different settings 
uh, in our church. This is how we ought to be, uh, meeting together regularly, having our lives intertwined with one another. Next mark of this church was their joyful spirit. Verse 46 says, day by day, attending temple together, uh, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This church had a great spirit. They were joyful, glad, generous. They praised God and they ate meals together with joy. These were not somber, strict religious people. Uh, these were fun people to be around. Uh, I can't remember exactly what book I read this in. I think it was something from C.S. Lewis. Uh, but he was describing how Christians ought to be hardworking, uh, serious about our mission, but also jovial. Uh, we ought to just be fun people. And he summarized it in these three statements. First in, last out, laughing loudest. And that's just stuck with me ever since I read it. First in, last out, laughing loudest. I don't even remember where I read it. Uh, but that's a good, good, good kind of uh, joyful yet committed, unifying, uh, working together for the advancement of the kingdom. That's the spirit that we need to have as a church. We're going to work hard, spread the gospel in our community, grow together spiritually, uh, teach serious doctrine from scripture, but we're also going to have a great time of it. Verse 47, we see they had a good reputation in the community, praising God and having favor with all the people. I think in some ways, this one is kind of a natural effect of all the previous points. Uh, this was a joy-filled, prayerful, generous group of people who work hard, they're honest, they, they care for each other. Uh, these are people who were well thought of in society. And I'm going to read a portion from an ancient letter that describes, it includes a description of this early church. This probably comes from the second century uh, in a letter to somebody named Diognetius, uh, where this guy is trying to explain to his friend what these new Christians are like. Uh, here's what he says. The Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor by customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. They marry, as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insulter with honor, they do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice. 
as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That's a great description of the early church, that they were just loving, joy-filled people that rejoiced in everything. Uh, you, you just couldn't make them mad. They'd get insulted and they'd praise the insulter. You'd persecute them and they would rejoice. These were a happy group of people. And so they had a great reputation. They had a reputation, you notice in that section, of being law-abiding citizens in their communities. They weren't causing trouble. These were upstanding citizens in society, and people noticed that there's something different about those Christians. And then here's the last mark of this early church, found in verse 47. It says, They were praising God, they were having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was a growing church. They were making disciples, baptizing converts, teaching them to follow Jesus, and God added to their number. And notice, it was the Lord who did this. Certainly, there are things that a church can do to be well-positioned for growth. Uh, we ought to devote ourselves to scriptural teaching, to fellowship for communion, prayer. We ought to be unified and generous. We ought to meet together regularly and have a joyful spirit among us. We ought to strive to have a good reputation in our community. And then we ought to reach out into our community and invite others to join us. But ultimately, it's up to the Lord to add to his church. And here in Jerusalem, he did. This church continued to grow and grow and made a huge impact in this area. We'll see more of that in the weeks to come. Uh, John Stott, who's probably my favorite Bible commentator, he wrote this about Acts 2.47. What Jesus did was two things together. He added to their number those who were being saved. He did not add them to the church without saving them, nor did he save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership belonged together, and they still do. So that's, I think that's a good mindset for us to have, that when we're saved, we are saved into the body of Christ, which necessarily means we are joining a new family. Uh, you can't accept, you know, you, when you're adopted by someone, uh, the siblings come with the package. You don't get to just say, oh, I'm not really part of this family, but I want to be adopted. And so Christianity, when you come to Christ, you are committing not only to Christ, but also to his body, to his people. And so having looked at this description of the early church, I think there's one thing in particular that stands out uh, throughout this passage, and that is that church isn't just an event you show up to on Sundays. It's a family to which you belong. You commit to one another when you become a member of a church. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. Uh, the American Christianity idea of just Jesus and me isn't biblical. We are supposed to covenant together to follow our Lord with a group of fellow Christians who can help us and hold us accountable in that effort. Uh, one more John Stott quote here uh, that sums up the passage well. It says, looking back uh, over these marks of the first spirit-filled community, it is clear that they all concerned uh, the church's relationship. First, they were related to the apostles in submission. They were eager to receive the apostles' instruction. And so a spirit-filled church is an apostolic church, a New Testament church, anxious to believe and obey what Jesus and his apostles taught. Secondly, they were related to each other in love. They persevered in the fellowship, supporting each other, relieving the needs of the poor. A spirit-filled church is a loving caring, and sharing church. Third, they, re they were related to God in worship. They worshiped him in the temple and in the home, in the Lord's Supper and in the prayers. 
with joy and with reverence. A spirit-filled church is a worshiping church. Fourth, they were, they were related to the world in outreach. They were engaged in continuous evangelism. A spirit-filled church is a missionary church. All of those points will be flushed out in greater detail uh, as we go through uh, the rest of these weeks studying through the book of Acts. But right here, just in these last few verses of chapter 2, Luke gives us a great description of what the church in Jerusalem was like in its infancy. We ought to strive still today to become this kind of church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved.